0: Здравствуйте, Руслан Николаевич. Я... А
1: я даже не знаю, он у меня как, записывает или
0: нет.
1: А, все, понеслась. Поехали дальше. It's not typical Texas.
0: Hey Slavic Connection listeners, it's Misha, and today we have an especially interesting guest. Ruslan Puchov is a leading Russian defense analyst and director of the Center for Analysis of Strategies and Technologies CAST, which is one of Russia's leading defense industry think tanks. Ruslan is a member of Russian Ministry of Defense's public council and has previously served as the executive director of Russian Armors Union. He will share his opinion on the state of Russia's aggression against Ukraine and its implications.
1: We know that Americans are ready to do extremely unpopular decisions if they think that it's their national interest. And obviously everybody, both in Kiev and in Moscow, must keep it in mind. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies, and William P. College Center for National Security at the University of Texas at Austin. and Great. Greetings from Moscow.
0: Yes. Hello. How is everything?
1: Today is the first day of autumn in Moscow, and in fact, uh, it's the, fir- the first day of October, and Indian summer is over. It was a great weather during the whole September. It was very hot. It was very
0: pleasant. And today is the really first kind of cold day. Yeah, that's nice. It's, uh, I mean, the weather doesn't really change here in Texas for right now. It's still super hot and uh, desert-like, but but we're surviving. So, Ruslan, could you please introduce yourself to briefly describe what, what your center does? I'm director of the privately owned think tank, which
1: studies defense issues here in Moscow. I established this uh, think tank uh, 27 years ago, jointly with my best friend and godfather of my oldest daughter, Konstantin Markienko. We both were students at Mgimor and French uh, Russian joint master program in political science and international relations at the mid- mid-90s. Unfortunately, he passed away because of cancer two years back, and now I'm the sole owner, director and sole owner of CAST. In fact, until recent time, we had three areas of our main, area, main areas of our activity. The analysis of conventional arms trade, both Russian and internationally. Transformation of uh, defense industry, both Russian and global mainly uh, defense industry producing conventional arms. We are less experts on WMD and on space issues. And the third uh, issue, it was uh, how weapons used in armed conflicts. Basically, we were studying armed conflicts, but not humanitarian aspect, mainly the expert uh, aspect of usage of weapons. And uh, for many, many years, uh, it was like this. We also have a residual or partial expertise in some countries. Uh, like We, we produced uh, several books and did our original studies on Iran, on Turkey, on Armenia, uh, on Pakistan,
0: also on China. But we mainly kind of defense experts. And how do you gather data for for your journal? Is it publicly available in the case of Russia? And was it difficult to start up a thing like that back in 97? You know, it was difficult at the beginning
1: because at that time there was no this information revolution which we witnessed, let's say, in 2000, 2001, 2003. Uh, But with the arrival of Internet and with the variety of social net, uh, social networks and uh, many other sources. Now the main target, is not to find information, not to acquire information. We are swimming in open source information, but basically to distinguish correct information with a false information. The most interesting thing that there are information which is falsified intentionally. And at the same time, there are lots of what we call in Russia, white noise false information which falsified people unintentionally, yeah? As Umberto Eco, late Umberto Eco, great French or Italian writer, proclaimed that the problem of today's world, that because of social media, every cretin who had no chance to write anything now is able to spread its nonsense all over the world. It's also one of the reasons why with the time Hypothetically, having uh, expertise and international and intellectual resources, we could have enlarged our activity, but we basically stayed like at the beginning with these three areas, simply
0: because this flooding of information, it was very difficult to cope with it. Who are your experts in, in the journal? Who do you work with uh, side by side? And are you kind of cooperating with with any uh, governmental institutions? Or is it a prerequisite to even be in the field like that? No, in fact, there are two questions in your one question. So as for our
1: staff, in fact, there are three types of people working with cast, in cast, for cast, jointly with cast and parallel with cast. One, it's like uh, staff researchers. We have, it depends on the year. It depends on the projects from five up to ten staff researchers. Yeah? We also have support staff like accountant, I don't know, cleaner. Until a recent time, we had a courier. Uh, now we use uh, courier services. It's much more profitable to have out, to outsource a courier. Yeah? Then we have people who collaborate with us on a regular basis. Uh, but these people are not cast employees. They are not on cast payrolls because uh, it's very costly. We are not a big corporation. We are not state-ranked monster with free money from the state. We had this experience, for example, we had a house expert on China. It's never brought money back. Yeah, That's why he left and now working in the high school of economics. So we have up to 25 people who regularly contribute to us writing. Some of them are our colleagues in state run institute like High School of Economics, Omgimor or MMO. Some are talented journalists because sometimes people who are working in a field in leading Russian media like Commerçant, Vedomisty, they know subject sometimes better than chartered experts. Yeah? We call them Sunday defense analysts, which is like people who do something else, but at the same time, they're interested in some subject. I have a couple of guys uh, who, who do other job. There is a great expert based in Irkutsk. His name is Yuri Lamin. You can Google his name and find his blog, which calls Imperial Navigator. It's all about Iran and military. He used to write his master dissertation some 10, 15 years ago about Iran. And he was shocked sure that not sufficient number of open source information available in Russian and in English about uh, Iranian military affairs, paramilitary affairs. And he basically decided to study it, uh, learned Farsi. And uh, now he's uh, a renowned expert, although he's not a member of academia, doesn't have a PhD, but he's a great expert. Uh, I saw him three times in my life, but we're in in constant correspondence with him via emails and uh, other means of modern communication. He lives in Irkutsk. And we have heard... Type of experts, uh, mainly it's uh, foreign experts. Some of them can be 100% like us. Like before annexation of Crimea, we had very good working relations with a Ukrainian center which calls Defense Express. Some people are journalists, like there is a very famous, world famous Brazilian journalist, Tigrid Gilev, who is my personal friend and friend of caste, who regularly writes us absolutely fantastic things about uh, Latin America, mainly Brazil. There are some uh, Western experts, uh, continental Europe, from United States of America, from Britain, who until now still work with us slightly less than before the last 18 months. But still, some underpending. Uh, these people contribute. To some we pay, but mainly these relations, they does not involve money transactions. In a sense, it's like uh, French people say, you scratch my back and I will scratch yours. They contribute to our understanding, to our magazine, we contribute to their studies. And it's very interesting, by the way, to see how these uh, people reacted on uh, current Russian-Ukrainian hostilities and the sanctions imposed on Russia. For majority of Europeans, especially East Europeans, it's became taboo. Yeah? For some British they basically still cooperate with us but under pen name and for majority of americans and and canadians it's still fine because there is a difference uh, in perception there is so to speak letter of law and there is a spirit of law this concept of spirit of law is uh, very much present in continental europe no matter that caste is privately owned organization no matter that neither your humble servant nor my colleagues are under the sanctions we won't cooperate with russians for americans uh, you cannot be half pregnant you're either pregnant or not yeah you're under the sanctions or we do business as usual it's very interesting experience nowadays
0: Wow, that's a a pretty full account of of your center's activities. Uh, Thank you for that. And uh, could you also walk us through Russia's weapons market and exports uh, since when you got into the business and kind of its uh, state before the full-scale invasion and how it affected that?
1: You know, the current Russian defense industry situation is uh, totally different from those before the beginning of the war. We should all keep in mind that Soviet Union collapsed at the end of 1991 at the peak of its technological might. There were a certain number of technologies where Soviet Union was well behind the collective West and namely the United States, for example, lasers. You know. Obviously, Yeltsin's Russia and Putin's Russia was not able to keep up R&D at the level of Soviet Union. At the same time, the state of economy was as such that internal procurement was there limited. And the Russian defense industry was surviving mainly on export contracts. The whole 90s, due to two oxygen pillows, one was named India and another is China. And these countries were choosing particular type of weapons which they need for their security. That's why in certain cases, it's not us, but foreign clients who made uh, the choice between, let's say, two rival projects. The most spectacular example is main battle tank, T-80, the very modern and performant tank, which was developed right before the collapse of Soviet Union with very sophisticated gas turbine engine, was rejected by Indians, and they opted to cheaper version, another tank, T-90, which basically a deeper grade of T-79. Due to this fact, the Omsk Smash production facility, which was producing T-80, went bankrupt. And we stayed with the less performant tank simply because foreign clients choose it. The, the more or less the similar story uh, happened with air defense. You know, the S-300P was less sophisticated system than the S-300V. But Chinese choose to buy massively at the beginning of 90s P-series. That's why that branch of air defense uh, became more developed than the one which used to be more promising. So for many years, for Russia, arms export was a tool of foreign policy influence and also important source of foreign currency and technological exchange uh, with the partners. Now it's all gone, simplifying to extreme, because Russia needs weapons to fight in Ukraine. And at the same time, United States and its allies exercise successfully a pressure on potential Russian bias either not to buy Russian weapons or to complicate payment for this. Uh, that's why many countries, due to the fact that they are dependent on the United States in that or another way, or on some of their partners, uh, they're simply afraid to buy a Russian weapon. That's why uh, I think that a Russian expert will never return to business as usual, even if in certain way. Russian-Ukrainian war stops tomorrow, knowing the fact that Russia lost more than 2,000 uh, main battle tanks during the first nine months of the war, to replenish its supply,
0: even with extra effort, we need min- minimum decade. Uh, so d- does, Ru- does Russia export any weapons now, or the weapons it uses in Ukraine are less sophisticated than the ones going for export, and it's simply not financially feasible to use uh, systems like S-400 on the front line, and you can use less sophisticated weaponry instead, and for main battle tanks and for everything else? Once special military operations started,
1: as, as we call it here in Russia, uh, a year and a half ago, Russian authorities imposed de facto a military censorship in Russia. The EU, where there is no military censorship, but de facto there is. And it also covers uh, the information about weapon production and uh, arms transfers. Sporadically, we see certain information due to our foreign partners who are either not afraid of the United States or like minded enough not to cover this information. For example, recently, there was an information that Togo bought and received a free Mi-17 uh, multifunctional helicopters. We know that India and China, having important fleet of Russian air force aircraft uh, and other products for their air forces, respective air forces, uh, including air defense, obviously uh, needs spare parts from Russia. Yeah, we all know about Turkey operating S-400 which is a rare example of the country which basically resists Western and American pressure to stop arms trade with Russia and to transfer S-400 to Ukraine, as some European partners of Ukraine and the United States did with the less sophisticated uh, air defense system S-300 of previous generation, namely Bulgaria and Slovakia.
0: Is it more important for Russia to sell uh, these arms to other countries to procure some money uh, for the defense industrial complex or for other reasons? Why not simply uh, use all the available resources as they come in Ukraine? Uh, You know, not all types of weapon
1: are critically needed in Ukraine. For example, Russia is the world leader with the United States in nuclear propulsion and especially in uh, submersibles, I mean submarines. Many countries have ambitious programs of either acquiring Lukakus or indigenously building, like Brazil, nuclear-propelled submarines. Uh, I think, uh, hypothetically, Russia can offer either submarines as it did for India or technologies. For certain types of equipment, Obviously, Russia lost its markets and will not be able to catch up its positions for foreseeable future. But it's mainly the things which are connected to uh, uh, equipment for army, land forces, main battle tanks, artillery systems, ammunition, uh, certain types of radars, obviously UAVs, but Russia was always lacking behind in the UAVs' development and production. Partially aircraft and air defense systems, but for some other things, for the Navy, for example, uh, Russia is still able to produce relevant things. Uh, the problem is how to receive payment, since Russia is cut off from SWIFT. Yeah, Hypothetically, you can take payment in commodities or in gold or in diamonds, but it takes time to adjust. Because before, Russia was an integral part of the world economy, which is not the case now.
0: And how would you evaluate the impact of Western sanctions on Russia's arms export capabilities? And are they having a significant impact or it's mostly a kind of chain of production issues that they cause? You know, Western sanctions had significant impact on,
1: uh, on Russian defense industry, on Russian economy, both military economy and civilian economy. But uh, if we look back in the history, uh, namely, the examples of North Korea, Iran, and Yugoslavia of Milosevic time, for sanctions really to break bone of the country, you need decades. Uh, sanctions, this is the tool which works long term. Another point, bigger country, bigger economy, bigger territory, bigger population, countries more resilient. And obviously, for all these examples, oh, for, by, by all these parameters, Russia is is and will be more resilient than Yugoslavia, Iran, or North Korea. That's why uh, we see the impact. We know it slowed down. For example, uh, uh, the, the most classical example, you know, Russians are hiding it like a venereal disease, but all experts know we all know uh, multiple rocket systems called Grad and Uragan, but they are not highly precision. Russia developed... The analogs of high Mars on the basis of these systems, making them very precise. It calls tornado. There are two types of tornado. And there, uh, there was already mass production of tornado before uh, the beginning of this war. And we saw them used in some trials. Uh, we saw them uh, already in the units. But suddenly we don't hear about any tornado for a year and a half. My theory. I cannot bet on this, but my theory, there is some sophisticated piece of Western technology, probably even from the United States, either hardware or software or joint, which basically doesn't allow to operate. And this is one of the examples how these sanctions impacted impacted the Russian defense industry and Russian way of war.
0: So would you say that this war is primarily fought uh, with... On the Russian side and on the Ukrainian side as well, with uh, Soviet-era armaments instead of kind of the what we would call 21st-century war, whatever that means, with more sophisticated weapons produced in post-Soviet Russia as well as post-Soviet Ukraine or West. Uh, how would you rate this kind of situation?
1: Then the conflict started a year and a half ago. Both sides were in had in a possession quite substantial number of uh, legacy equipment from uh, Soviet times or something which they produce indigenously uh, both in Russia and Ukraine but morally and spiritually it was the derivatives derived from their Soviet analogs. Let's take the artillery for example. With the time Russia basically uh, extensively used artillery. That's why uh, nowadays the majority of our artillery systems are not as good as they were when we entered this war. Uh, the substitutes which came, they are of the lower quality, both from the stocks and quickly produced. And with Ukraine, it's vice versa. All what they had legacy systems, especially of big calibers, after extensive use, they gone, but they were replaced with the more sophisticated, Systems which were delivered by Western countries. Uh, a big problem with these systems is that they are so difficult, uh, they are so different. We call them a zoo, yeah, that even if the caliber is the same, for example, the projectiles produced in Slovakia for Zuzanna Hauser cannot be used in other houses. Zuzanna eats only Zuzanna projectiles. This is a big, big problem that even being juridically of the same caliber, they are not substitute one to another, yeah. But to my mind, the main problem of Ukraine, uh, as far as the war concerned, it's not equipment. West will keep supplying Ukraine with equipment. It's the demography, because the uh, Ukrainian losses are huge, and not only battlefield, but also immigration. And we all know that basically, uh, many people who gone, and it's not only the case of Ukraine, of any conflict. Uh, Two-thirds of these people, they don't return. Yeah. Different uh, demographic ass- uh, um, assessments says that now there are between 27 and 25 million Ukrainians in Ukraine. This is a contradictory to official figures. Obviously, President Zelensky and his colleagues claim that there are much more Ukrainians, that the rate of mortality in Ukraine is now in the mid of 19th century. Yeah, uh, The war... Forty million of Ukrainians, well before uh, the First World War, so like basically Ukraine as a country as an entity is rejected back for almost a century and a half. And war, it's just a cherry on top, because in general the economic situation, political instability in the country, even before the annexation of Crimea, yeah, the, the the concrete losses of killed and wounded are not that dangerous. This is a bigger trend. There is a very famous demographer in Russia, uh, in a sense a positional demographer, because he was thrown out of the civil service after he claimed that the Russian authorities are lying about COVID losses. Alexander Raksha, I strongly encourage you to work uh, to watch inter- his interviews and work with him. He's not a Putin sympathizer, but uh, basically I describe you his ideas.
0: Do you think uh, Ukraine can develop its own military industrial complex while this war is ongoing? And does it even make sense? Or should it completely outsource its production uh, and development of military capabilities to the West? But then the question arises, how will it finance kind of this expensive toy, which is Western weaponry, with what you said, diminishing demographic potential? And just in general, uh, being a a poor country to start with? You know, there is no direct correlation between demography, size of the country, GDP,
1: square kilometers of its territory and uh, defense industry, ability to have performant defense industrial complex. Uh, Look, Pakistan and India. Simplifying to extreme, Pakistan's defense industry is a smaller, but it's mean and lean, it's dense. One of the signs of successes of Pakistan defense industry, it's the level of expert. Pakistani weapon is extremely reliable and cheap. And it's also the weapon which Ukraine now uses against Russia because Ukraine was buying it via proxy, mainly Britain. Indians trying to develop many things and having very particular problems, uh, they are too self-confident. Basically, the outcome is uh, not as good so basically they they have aircraft which don't fight we have air defense system which is not reliable and so on so forth okay i simplify to extreme the same for ukraine like for smaller countries let's take another example war it's extreme let's take covid yeah there was a COVID, there was a lack of masks people were dependent on china on some other countries that's why if country would like to be resilient if country would like to be less dependent on its partners, yeah, you're supposed to have certain number of things starting from masks up to let's say uh, small arms and light weapons, yeah. If you don't produce cartridges, you know, there was only one cartridge can look, uh, plant in Lugansk. Yes, there are something in uh, and something else, but mass production. Basically, you are at the mercy of your foreign partners and if they are unable to or, or not willing for some reason, to, to supply. The same thing, for example, the barrels, you know, any machine gun can still work, but barrel basically gone is very quickly. Some reliable and responsible partners give two spare barrels, but some not, you know. That's why uh, every country, knowing its industrial capacities, its financial resources, supposed to uh, make a priorities. Of course, it would have been great to produce everything, But if for some reason a country is unable to produce something or is able to develop but not able to do a mass production, because what is important is scale, yeah? God helps big battalions, you know? For large-scale conflict, you need a lot of things. Sometimes let it be slightly less sophisticated, but you're supposed to produce it in the bigger numbers. And one of the problems of Ukraine before the war, no matter under Poroshenko, uh, under Zelensky and the previous presidents, it was this megalomania, you know. Ukraine, uh, Ukraine's defense industry, it was not Ukraine's defense industry. It was a piece of almighty Soviet defense industry, you know. If you would like to create something serious, uh, not for the shows, not for the parades, you're supposed to sacrifice some kind of uh, facilities, you know. Not many people knowing that the current Corvette, which uh, Ukraine is buying from uh, Turkey, in fact, was designed by Ukrainians 15 years back. So the conceptual of design was done by Ukrainian engineers, you know. But that's Turks who constructed it for themselves and now selling back to Ukraine as a, a, a piece. Because they have a potential and Ukraine not. That's why uh, then now we see in Ukraine there is a big discussion that foreign partners will help with this, with this, with this. People supposed to be minimum serious, because declaration is one thing and the real thing is another thing. Plus, there is another important thing that probably your partners is ready to help you. But if the local engineers and local workers is unable to absorb this technology, which is which was sometimes the case with India, Russians, French was delivering them, but they were not able to digest. Yeah, that's why it's a, it, it's very important, uh, especially for country at war question, but it's extremely politicized. You know, he, she, or it's supposed to be very sober, to do tangible steps and defense industry. This is not a agriculture, it's not consumer goods. But sometimes you you start invest, and the fruits will be in a decade. What is good in Ukraine that this period of uh, pre-war standoff between annexation of Crimea and the open hostilities in uh, February last year brought Ukrainians to the idea that they supposed to use commercial-off-the-shelf technologies, not buy drones from United States, which would be expensive and limited capacities, but just buy uh, Mavics uh, from China and use them for artillery. That's why basically having a more obsolete artillery than Russians, uh, using the quadricopter and Starlink Ukrainians were more successful in artillery duels. Russians were using batteries, two, three, six pieces, and Ukrainians almost constantly use one, but it was more successful because people were smart enough to couple the old Soviet piece of technology with commercial of the shell of the shell drone, basically, which was initially created for waiting, waiting photographer, it was quite a, quite an important achievement of Ukraine.
0: Yes, that, that's. Uh, I agree with all of that analysis. However, there is also an issue of uh, brain drain, and I think demography is closely connected with it. So, those two thirds of people that leave the country that never come back, as you've mentioned most of them are in their prime, and not only that, but they are the most educated people usually. And to develop uh, this sort of indu- military-industrial complex and absorb, even absorb Western technology. Or for, for mass production or semi-mass production, Ukraine would need to have the brains to do it. And, uh, and seems like, uh, with this invasion, uh, as you mentioned before, also the biggest impact is specifically on the outflow of people out of the country. So, Will it have long-term effects? And while Russia suffers under the sanctions, it doesn't have those sorts of uh, structural issues that can't be overcome because you can later down the line get the technology and catch up if you still have the people and educated uh, elites and, and everything. But in Ukraine's case, it's much more difficult.
1: No, Mikhail, we are mixing up two things. One is demography and immigration and another one uh, basically high tech development if we speak about immigration in general one if ukraine after this war let's put it simplifying to extreme will be a country which would be developing indigenously and with help of western partners it it, it would become an interesting uh, place for immigration and you would be able to choose people who come and dwell in ukraine hypothetically why not Christian Indians or Christian uh, Africans. I'm speaking about Christianity not because I'm Islamophobe. You know, my late mom was a practicing Muslim and my grandfather was an imam of our local community. Simply these people would be easier to absorb. It would be easier to integrate them in, into the into, into your society. And this flukes of people you should do in a way that would be not only plumbers, and drivers and people of couriers, uh, uh, pizza deliveries, but should be highly educated people. If you remember Barack Obama's father was from Kenya, he graduated from American university, then returned to, to Kenya to to Korea, yeah? That's why, hypothetically, you also can follow this path. As for defense industry, apart from uh, people, you should uh, think about, about robotics. Uh, the things which was used to be done by people now is done by the computers, is done by 3D printing, you know, uh, machines producing machines. Another important thing, it's a kind of school of thought. Yeah, Let's look for two countries which at some point similar and some point different. Russian students going to the West. I know Russian students after the Western education, if there were political scientists, or if they were actors, if they were, I don't know, not physicists, not engineers, they returned to Russia. I've never heard about someone who graduated from MIT or uh, some other technical and structural engineer who returned after that to work in Russia. Uh, What is not the case of Turkey, look at Selçuk Bayraktar. Now it's a very famous uh, person and celebrity, Turkey. He's married to Erdogan's daughter. But both him and his father were not celebrities. Then they graduated from uh, American universities and returned back to Turkey, first to do spare parts for cars, and then to produce UAVs. And then when he became a successful entrepreneur, he became a political figure and uh, got married to Erdogan's uh, daughter. Yeah? If Ukraine uh, would be simplifying to extreme, resembling Russia and it was pre-war Russia, yeah? then you have less a chance to have a sophisticated and performant defense industry. If you would resemble more Turkey, then you have more chances.
0: So that's a very in- unique perspective, I would say, because in many cases, Ukraine's uh case reminds me of armenia uh and uh, the ongoing crisis in nagorno karabakh uh where obviously we know what happened already but but the conditions that led to it were in some ways similar where uh, Armenia was just getting weaker and weaker, while Azerbaijan was getting stronger, on the other hand. Uh, and demography was, in some cases, also a d- deciding factor, uh, but also, of course, the financial flows and everything else. But in a sense, uh, it just seems to me that the forces of Russia and Ukraine are not... Equal in the long term, and and all of those Christian Africans or Indians, as you put it, will not simply flock into Ukraine, which sits on the doorstep of a nuclear superpower.
1: Uh, it's it's not easy to reason uh, under these angles, especially that you raise several complicated questions. I will start to Armenian and Azeri case. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right that uh, after the decisive victory which Armenians achieved in '94 over the Azerbaijan, there was a window of opportunity to find a peaceful solution under Gidara Liv until his death in 2003. Unfortunately, Armenians uh, were not smart enough to do some kind of concessions and sacrifice and find the kind of win-win solution. Starting from, I think, Katrina was in 2003, then the oil prices uh, went more than 50 US dollars per barrel. It was already clear that Azerbaijan uh, is not interested to find any solution. And they were simply preparing to return what they considered to be yours by force. And in fact, they did it very successfully. They started in the right time, they stopped in the right time. And even this three year pause before the final solution, of Karabakh issue is also was very smart yeah and that's why I I think the defeat of Armenia was inevitable and uh, the main problem for Armenia since country is very small there is a small resources there is a population which is not extremely uh, how should I put it Uh, not, not, not huge yeah and there is no diaspora there are diasporas they are different the chances for development in, in, in such a uh, surrounding were not very high, especially after Russia, uh, Russia's, Georgia's war. Yeah. So the, the country was de facto blocked. Yeah. Uh, that's why, to my mind, the fate of the fate of Armenia is not, basically the, the question is, it's just to surrender at the mercy of Azeris and Turks. And uh, their complaints about uh, lack of Russian support, just and relevant only partially, because basically Armenians themselves got tired of this uh, situation of blockade for almost three decades. And uh, the society, Armenian society, was not ready to do uh, sacrifices, which unexpectedly, for example, Ukrainian society is, uh, is ready to do which was a big surprise for Russian war planners, that Ukraine being also not very much homogeneous country because uh, before this war, there was a huge difference between, let's say, a regular inhabitant of, uh, let's say, Flyov and Kharkov. Uh, it looked like Eastern, non-Ukrainian-speaking uh, Ukrainians were equally loyal to current power uh, than, let's say, pro-Western zealots. yeah? And it was not the case of Armenia. And uh, it's twice as um, deplorable to see that people, basically for the sake of preserving psychological stability, almost entirely blaming Russia for their problems. Uh, Russia is responsible for their problems, but Russia is not a key issue. The main problem of Armenia is that basically the republic failed that uh, Armenians were very great then they were part of some big empire, no matter Ottoman Empire, Persian Empire, Russian Empire, Soviet Union. But as an independent state, Armenia is largely failed. It, it's, it's a, I, I'm simplifying to extreme, uh, but uh, to my mind, this is the key issue. And, and in fact, before annexation of Crimea, Ukraine was largely a failed state, you know. And uh, Putin twice galvanized Ukraine, once after annexation of Crimea, and then after the events of February 2020. And Ukraine uh, basically got a second chance, yeah? To my mind, uh, Ukraine has bigger chance if it would be a political nation than uh, an ethnic country, because many people uh, who are not proficient in Ukrainian language but let's say, but let's say consider themselves a Ukrainians after the war would be uh, very much surprised if their fellows especially those who are not who are not fighting with them uh, side by side with Russians uh, start to intimidate them for no know, for knowledge for, for lack of knowledge of proper Ukrainian language yeah but uh, i think uh, it's too early to speak about it
0: You know, I just can't help but see some parallels between Ukraine and uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. But I mean, distant parallels, but this question is more pertaining to Ukraine. So, for instance, we've seen the election in Slovakia where likely a more pro-Russian party would come to power and still they would have to form coalitions. But uh, nevertheless, there is uh, increasing Ukraine uh, skepticism. On the part of Europeans, Poland uh, has been pretty vocal uh, in the case of farmers' dispute and with grain and Ukraine. So, also the elections in the United States are coming up, uh, and we've just seen uh, the, how Ukraine basically got thrown out of the temporary budget prolongation. So, Ukraine is also at the mercy of its allies and partners which one day they're here and another day they're not here. Uh, But the war is still there and Russia is still pretty self-sufficient. So how do you see uh, the prospects uh, for this war going forward? You know, uh, unfortunately, I don't have crystal ball
1: and I cannot predict future. I can tell you one thing uh, where I'm sure that all these elections in Europe are uh, of partial relevance for Ukrainian situation. No matter who's at power in Slovakia, it's not Slovakia, even Hungary, which would decide. Uh, what is the real risk for Ukraine? It's the politicization of a Ukrainian issue in upcoming presidential elections in the United States. Because uh, if it would galvanize and polarize the potential voters, uh, we know that Americans are very pragmatics and Democrats will find a way to explain why it's not time to support Ukraine? Yeah, uh, this is the, the, the to my mind this is the main uh, threat for Ukrainian support. As for Europe, uh, we see that uh, Europe is pretty unanimous in in Ukrainian support and will keep delivering uh, weapons and some other type of assistance. Obviously, potential of the United States is not uh, comparable to that of Europeans. But with the time, I think uh, Europeans would be able to pro- to produce or to procure elsewhere, like in South Korea, in Turkey, uh, things which Ukraine needs. Yeah. So another uh, important issue for Ukraine: the issue of how to end war is extremely politicized. But Ukrainians uh, themselves, both general public and uh, authorities, uh, civilian authorities, military authorities. Should understand what is the victory for you, Ukrainian flag over the Kremlin. This is the victory, or what? Ukrainian flag uh, over the Donetsk. You know, because before formulation, what victory is, at least for yourself, not for propaganda issues. It's extremely difficult to to wage war. To wage war, you supposed to understand what are your targets, and you should understand what. Uh, what you would tell to your allies who who supports you yeah and i think this is the the second the second issue that because of several reasons which we will not discuss in the scope of this interview neither ukrainian elite uh nor ukrainian public don't understand what is the victory in terms of of realistic approach yeah
0: yes i i also agree with that assessment however at least there is a more coherent message to the Ukrainian public from President Zelensky and those in the power that Ukraine's territorial integrity is uh, kind of the guiding uh, compass for Ukraine going forward. Even if it seems distant at the moment, at least I didn't see any uh, serious statements regarding full victory, sort of 1945 Berlin style, But, but those elements are certainly there. You know,
1: integrity is a,
0: is a good word, yeah. But basically,
1: we had several cases in history. Then peace was traded for territory, um, vice versa. And we know that Russia basically is uh, fighting alone. Yeah. Uh, yes, there are those who simplifies Russia. I always said that Russia have fans like Serbia, but Russia doesn't have allies. Ukraine has powerful allies. That's why at certain point these allies are able to squeeze Ukraine's balls. Let's put it uh, blankly and uh, asking for some type of sacrifice. And you also should understand what kind of sacrifice you are ready to do and what not. Because we knew examples. For example, then France jointly with Britain invaded Egypt and annexed the Channel Zone. Basically, there were two countries which unanimously torpedo this operation it was Khrushchev's Soviet Union, Eisenhower's, and Eisenhower's, United States. And Eisenhower is went even much further because next month, after the end of inflation uh, invasion, they basically torpedoed the exchange rate of pound. You know, and British in one day became two times poorer. You know, the pound collapsed. Yeah, and we know that Americans are ready to do extremely unpopular decisions if they think that it's their national interest. From this point of view, the Biden decision to leave like this, Afghanistan is one of the examples. And obviously everybody, both in Kyiv and in Moscow, must keep it in mind.
0: The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas
1: Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com.
0: Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the
1: people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces
0: thank you very much for this conversation. I enjoyed it thoroughly, and I hope the listeners will as well. Thank you. Дай бог, дай бог. что меня после этого не
1: выгонят из Общественного совета